turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Romans, this time chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. going to read the first two verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray briefly. Lord, once again, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures given to us to make us wise unto salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you thank, we thank you for the grace that impels us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, we long to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. And to that end, we pray, send your spirit and enlighten our minds and hearts and stir our affections heavenwards, Christward, this night. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> there was nothing tepid lukewarm or half-hearted about the Apostle Paul. Everything he did was whole-hearted. Remember, even before he was converted, he was a zealous man. He went the length and breadth of the land in order to seek out disciples of Jesus, have them put into prison and killed. Once grace had got a hold of him. His zeal and his energies were totally redirected. Grace liberated his affections and his heart was set upon Christ. A love for Christ and a love for the truth and a love for those who came to a saving knowledge of Christ. Listen, for example, to the earnestness in a chapter or two before this. In chapter 9, and verse 2, we need to go back to verse 1 really to get the context. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. There's his zeal and earnestness to see the conversion of fellow Jews. Or again in 2 Corinthians and chapter 11, we see there the Apostle Paul in a, a spirit of holy jealousy. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, All that you would bear with me a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. 
For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You feel the heart of this man burning with passion, earnestness, sanctified energy and ardour. It makes compelling reading and listening. And it shows us the way that we are to live out our lives. So here we come to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. A strong, tender, personal appeal. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There are three things I want to look at from this verse. We'll leak over into verse 2 a little, but largely it's verse 1 that I want us to concentrate. Firstly, we notice here an appeal grounded on divine mercy. It is an exhortation. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. But it is an appeal. It's based on a loving relationship that he has with every fellow believer. They are brethren. Now, he's never set eyes on most of these Romans, but he's not ashamed to call them his brethren. They are his fellow saints. They are beloved of God. They've been called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. They are recipients of grace and peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I beseech you. Now, we're listening to words of the apostle here, but can you imagine what would have been on his face if he was addressing them personally? He wouldn't have just stood there with a flat face, as it were, with no expression on his face. I beseech you. No, there is earnestness. There is ardour. There is heat in what he has to say. It's a pleading face full of earnest desire. In classical Greek, when someone beseeched you, in classical Greek, it's used of an army commander who is stirring up his troops who are about to go into war. Now, the Roman army was well known in its day and what he would have been doing is saying you know you're serving the Caesar you're serving the Roman Empire you have a great privilege you have a great honor in doing this now come on men stirring them up to energetic action to go and to fight in that spirit well Paul is doing more than that he's an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ he is stirring us up, not because we belong to some great empire and serve a great emperor. He's stirring us up because we serve a great God who has been gracious and merciful and kind to us. It's full of tenderness. It's full of eloquence, earnest care and concern. His appeal is grounded in the mercies of God you men and women in Rome have received 
that mercy, he's saying to them. Now here is the difference between someone who is a Christian and someone who's not yet become a Christian. Someone who hasn't become a Christian doesn't really understand and appreciate the mercies of God. But a Christian is someone who has tasted the mercies of God. Who's experienced them. They are so vital, so important. They motivate and drive us. Paul is saying, I'm appealing to you, brethren. How can you live any other way, given that you have received such mercy from God and enjoy such kindness from his hands? I'm appealing to you, but I want you also, I want you to work it out. Use your minds. Think of the mercies that you have received. Be conscious of those mercies day by day. Stir up your mind. How has God been merciful and kind to me? Let that constrain you, he's saying. I beseech you to do this. Think of God's mercies. This is your reasonable service to God as he says at the end of this verse if you understand then the mercies of God you will be constrained to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to him there's a key word in this verse it's the first word therefore Eleven chapters have preceded this. In those eleven chapters, Paul has been explaining the mercies of God. He's been talking about universal sinfulness of the human race, Jew and Gentile. And then he's gone on, as we saw this morning, to expound justification by faith. That's one of the greatest mercies that God has bestowed upon us. And then he's gone on in chapter 6. And seven and eight to speak of our sanctification, our being conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. Our, that, that transformation, those who have died to sin, be made alive together in Christ, joined to him and living then a holy life, offering the members of our body as instruments to righteousness. And then in chapter 9 and 10, he's gone on to speak of God's electing grace. How God chooses sinners out of this human race. That's the only way to be saved. Some people have a great problem with election. But my friends, it's the only way anyone is ever going to be saved. If God did not set his love upon us before the foundation of the world, no one would be saved. And he expounds those things in chapters uh, 9 and 10. The gospel, as he says in chapter 1, is the power of God to salvation to all who believed. These are some of the rich mercies that are being bestowed upon us. And they're not something we just leave behind in the past and say, well, that's, that, that belongs to the past. Now I, I'm living my life without reference to those mercies. No, the more you stir up those mercies, the more you remember and are thankful to God, the more constrained you will be to live in a certain way. I beseech you then, he says. I beseech you. That's the basis for his appeal. This mercy which we have received. 
He's not going here in the direction of people who say, well, you know, you do your best, you improve yourself. It never works. It can't work. You can't make yourself better. You have a responsibility, but it's a responsibility in the light of the mercies that you have received in Jesus Christ. You don't pull yourself up by your own bootlaces, as we sometimes say. You don't do your level best, as if it depended upon you. It depends upon the power of the Spirit of God working in you as you reflect upon these mercies of God. This is nothing less than a divine enabling. This is the power of God at work in your heart and life. This is the way it works itself out. This is the sanctifying power of God. It's the power of the gospel which you've believed. You've received mercy. You don't deserve it, but you have received it. Here is the constraining power then of the gospel. And Paul pours all his energy he focuses, he zooms in all his energy at this point into his appeal. There's a fire burning in his soul and he wants us to catch and feel the heat of that fire. You're living in a hostile, ungodly world, he says to the Romans elsewhere. We're living in a hostile and ungodly world, but that it should not deter us. What is most important is the mercies that we have received. That makes all the difference. And it has a constraining power. It's a call then, it's an appeal. I beseech you, it's an appeal to live a completely different way of life to the rest of the human race. A distinctly Christian life. So here is this earnest appeal. Grounded in divine mercy. But then secondly we see. It's an appeal that concerns your body. It's an appeal that concerns your body. See he says you. I beseech you that you present your bodies. A living sacrifice. Now in Paul's day, the Greeks didn't think very much of their body. They despised it. They looked upon it as something of little importance. It was a kind of bondage. Yet at the same time, many of the Greeks indulged in sexual immorality. It was part and parcel of their daily life. Degrading influences. And these Romans lived in the midst of that. The Corinthians lived in the midst of it. The Thessalonians lived in the midst of it. And Paul urges these Christian men and women in these different cities. He urges them to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. Corinth was notorious. Thessalonica was not much better. When Paul, sorry, when John wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor, those seven letters that you find in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, there was in Smyrna, Balaam followers. What did Balaam do? If you turn to the book of Numbers, you will find what Balaam did. He stirred up the Moabites 
in order to get them to lead the Moabite women, to lead the men into sexual immorality in Israel. And then you have in Thyatira, Jezebel. You've got people there who follow Jezebel and promote her. Well, what was she? She was one of the most wicked women in the Old Testament scriptures. She hated true religion. She promoted idolatry and wickedness and immorality on a large scale. Sexual uncleanness, temple prostitutes. That was the rut of the mill. That was the ordinary daily life of so many people. Now Paul says, you are Christians. You have received the mercies of God. That is going to make all the difference in the world. Sanctification includes the sanctification of this body the whole body otherwise it's not real it's not genuine your body is not somehow detached from your Christianity no it's to be used in a specific way if you turn back a couple of chapters or more than a couple of chapters Romans chapter 6 and verse 12 Paul says there having explained union with Christ you've been joined to Christ You've been united to him. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. What members is he talking about? The members of your body, your hands, your feet, your sexual organs, everything. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see, he said to them on a number of occasions in this chapter, you've died to sin. That's the meaning of what Christ has done and being joined to Christ. You have died to sin and you're called now to serve God with your physical mortal body. It comes out very clearly when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Do you not know that your body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Do you realize that? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought at a price. What was that? The blood of Jesus Christ. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, a Christian reaches the point as they read the scriptures and understand the scriptures. You say, I'm not, I'm not my own. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. All of me belongs to God. When I was purchased by Christ, when he shed his blood on that cross, he redeemed me, but he redeemed my body. See, when God made Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he made Adam and Eve, their bodies were an integral part of them. Their bodies were formed out of the dust of the ground. And then God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living being, a living soul. 
Now God has breathed new life into you. He's joined you to Christ. He indwells your body by his Holy Spirit. And eventually, what will be the end of your body? Oh, you say, well, it will die, it will be buried in the ground. No, that's not the end of you. The body, your physical body, will be raised from the dead when Jesus Christ returns. Let me show you that from Philippians and chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says there, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then notice these words in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. God will raise your body from the dead. But it's your body, it's you. <laughs> That's the vital thing that Paul is stressing here. I beseech you, brethren, then that you now at this point in history, at this point in time, this point in your life, that you offer your bodies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, this is a realistic appeal. Everywhere he meant he went, he was profoundly aware of the vices associated with the body. We live in a society where sexual immorality is rife. We see it every day. We hear about it every day. People's mouths speak wicked things with their lips, their sexual organs, their clothing, their eating, their drinking. It all tells us that we live in a society that's obsessed with the body, eating, drinking, sexual desire, and so on and so forth. And invariably the whole thing is perverted and twisted. So you can see what his appeal is. Brethren, God has shown mercy to you. He's taken you out of this world. And you're no longer now to use your bodies in order to promote sin and unrighteousness. Rather, they belong to God. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you are then to use your physical body in a way that brings honor and glory to your Redeemer and displays that you have experienced the mercies of God. And now thirdly, his appeal to them is to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice. Now that's a picture, a sacrifice, is a picture drawn from the Old Testament scriptures, isn't it? An animal would have been slain, the animal's blood would have been shed, and that animal would then have been set apart for one purpose, sacrifice. 
It was regarded as sacred. It was regarded as being set apart to God. It was holy. It was acceptable to God. If it was a proper sacrifice. You remember in the days of Malachi, they were offering sick and lame beasts. Well, they're no use. Get rid of them. Let's give them as a sacrifice. And God despised that, turned against the people in Malachi's day. Bring, bring, bring a sacrifice that is worthy of God. Set it apart as holy. And Paul's appeal, the appeal of Scripture, Christ's appeal, then is no longer a ritual offering of an animal, but you, yourself, you are now a living sacrifice. And he's saying it's your reasonable service. By that he means it's something you intelligently work out and think about. It's rational. You dedicate, you consecrate yourself to God, your physical body to God. You consciously decide to do that. You've worked it out. You've experienced the mercies of God. You know you have a holy calling. You know that your body is to be offered up as a sacrifice you're working through those things. You're united to Christ. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. These things constrain you. Now he says, offer your body. Present your body. And that's presenting your body. Presenting is the technical term in the Old Testament for the offering up of a sacrifice. So Paul is pulling here on the Old Testament pattern very clearly. It's an appeal to consecrate yourself. And yourself means you, your body, your flesh and blood, the members of your body, a conscious, intelligent dedication of your body to the service of God, compelled and driven by the mercies that you have received. And it's not something you do once. And then it's all over with. A Christian is someone who lives one day at a time with their eyes set upon heaven and glory. It's a daily, constant, self-conscious offering up of yourself to God. Again, Romans, for example, chapter 6, and this time verse 13 again. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves, there's that same word again, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You are then to be different. If you are a Christian, you do not live in the same way as the world lives. You are to be different. You're not to give yourself over to the sensual lusts and desires of the world. Someone once paraphrased the scriptures and paraphrased this phrase as don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's what Paul is saying here effectively. But be transformed, verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. Prove, work it out, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see the logical way in which he's dealing with this. This is something you work out. You've received mercies. Your body is the temple of the Spirit. Your body is united to Christ. Therefore, live in this kind of way. 
You feel the power of that logic? How reasonable it is? How unreasonable it would then to say, oh, I don't care. I don't, it doesn't matter how I live. I can do what I like with my body. My body's my own. That isn't the way a Christian thinks at all. A Christian is someone constrained by the mercies of God. They use their minds to make intelligent decisions motivated by the grace, mercy and power of God. But we are to offer ourselves, present ourselves, our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. What then is pleasing to God? Scripture spells it out very clearly. Let me tell you some of the ways in which Scripture speaks in this manner. What about the tiniest member in your body? This little fella, the tongue, the lips, the tongue. Remember what James says? It's like a forest fire. It's capable of all kinds of damage and destruction. Compares it to the rudder in a ship. But it's the most significant member of your body. It is capable, says James, of defiling your whole body. So we are to take the utmost care about the words that come out of our mouths because they are a vital part of our body and we are offering up ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So we offer up a sacrifice of praise with our lips to God. That's what we've been doing this evening. But we well know that during the week all kinds of other words will come out of our lips and they will not necessarily be those that are pleasing to God. Paul in various places tells us to put away lying lips, backbiting, malicious talk. Let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth. And he includes their coarse jesting, jokes that are not clean jokes, but smutty, dirty jokes, swearing, blasphemy. That's what goes on all around us. If you live and work in this world like I do, you hear it every day. You hear it on the TV. You read about it. In social media, these are the words that people use. But Paul is saying, your lips, your lips, you are to use them in a specific way. You're to speak the truth in love and edify those who hear you. You're going to be different from the world in the way that you speak. People will notice. People will notice. But then, what about eating and drinking, our appetite? Paul says, put away drunkenness, Put away gluttony. That was very common in Paul's day. It is common in our day. But Paul says, no, 
You are to exercise self-control in eating and in drinking. There's no place for a Christian to abuse his or her body with drugs. There's no place either for the Christian to use their sexual organs to promote immorality and to satisfy those sensual desires. We know that that was rife, as we've already stressed in Paul's day. Paul can write to the Corinthians in chapter 6 and verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, a prostitute? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, husband and wife. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him flee sexual immorality every sin that a man does is outside the body but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body now we could list a whole host of sins that are prevalent in our own day and age marital unfaithfulness sexual relationships outside of marriage pornography same-sex marriages Sexual freedom, that's the message we are told today. That's what we can do. Your body is your own. You can do what you like with it. Sleep with whom you like. It doesn't matter. It's of no great consequence. But Paul says, no, the body is not for immorality. It is for the Lord. What if you're united to someone who's an unbeliever in marriage? Well, if you, you, but your husband or your wife has not then been converted after marriage, you remain. If the unbeliever is willing to stay, then you remain. You don't divorce. And again, Paul is hedging us in to maintain purity. But it extends to the clothes that we wear. Peter emphasised how ladies especially were to adorn themselves. The hidden person of the heart was important, precious in God's eyes. Let me say to you ladies, be chaste in the clothes that you wear, adequate clothes that covers your thighs and your chest. Men and women... Don't wear clothing that is so tight that it emphasizes the physical shape and form of your body. It gives prominence to the body, to draw attention to the body. You belong to Christ. You're united to Christ. Why then would you want to do that? Why would you want to promote wrong thoughts? What are you trying to do if you dressed in that manner? Don't let the world dictate to you. These are some of the things that this means. Our bodies, all of us, 
all, every member of our body is to be presented to Christ, to God, as a living sacrifice. Brothers, sisters, take heed to Paul's appeal. Work it out in your own heart and mind so that you are convinced in your own mind what it means and why you should be a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. It's something intelligent. It's something you decide in. You are involved in. You are working out your salvation. You are working out what it means to live a holy life in this world where there's so much corruption and so much darkness and so much ignorance. You want to live a life that is holy, that is pleasing to God. That's your calling. And Paul is saying, I beseech you. I plead earnestly with you with my whole heart. Live in this kind of way. You've been washed. Clean in the blood of Christ. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. How then must you live? What option is there? Is there another option? in which you can be pleasing to God? I can't find one in my Bible. <laughs> it's plain. It's plain. And what if you're not yet converted? The temptations for you young people are very many. What goes on in schools, the friends that you have, the people that you know, They perhaps know you go to church. They perhaps know that your parents are Christians. And they may pour scorn upon you. Let them pour scorn. You know better. You do know better. But you need, as I said this morning, you need to come to Jesus Christ. Do you know, have you experienced the mercies of God? Your sins forgiven. As Christ made you his own, as he stamped you, as it were, as belonging to him, as he washed you clean from your sins. Your sins are many. You've broken the laws of God. You've been defiled by this world. But there is pardon. Oh yes, there is forgiveness. And there is cleansing. And there is the renewing of your body. The saving of your soul when you belong to Christ. May Christ draw you to him, to love him and to serve him. Amen. Amen.